Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jacqueline Meredith. This episode features expert insight from a virtual webinar titled ART Safety and Tolerability, a focus on aging patients in populations with cardiometabolic toxicities. Retrain Dr. Marta Bufito, consultant physician and professor at the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital and Imperial College of London in the United Kingdom, and Dr. Jens Lundgren, professor at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark. In this episode, they address questions about ART safety and tolerability in key populations, such as aging patients and populations with cardiometabolic toxicities. For the full online educational program, including downloadable slides, please visit the link in the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what our expert faculty have to say about this topic. Uh, so uh, I can see that there is a question from Heather and Marta, just to bring you in here, because I know you have uh, also extensive experience with this and maybe we can uh, debate it here. The question from Heather is uh, on the lipid panel, which parameters are most changed and are there known changes in VLDL or other parameters? Marty, you want to get a stab at that? I'm happy to follow up. Yes, thank you, Jens. I mean, the cardiologists that we work with are very much insisting on total cholesterol LDL. The ratio is important. And now the non-LDL cholesterol is also something that they are really looking at. Uh, let me give you a practical example. So we're quite lucky at Chelsea Westminster Hospital where I work in London. We actually are able to perform coronary artery calcification scores for people who are living with HIV and are above the age of 50. And when the coronary artery calcification score is between 50 and 75, we don't need to refer to the cardiologist because what we are asked to do is to actually make sure that we aggressively treat the cholesterol and make sure that the total cholesterol is below four and the LDL is below two. So those are really what we should focus on. And I would say that when we see people that are presented with the cardiometabolic syndrome, with the metabolic syndromes, those are the ones that are raised and those are the, one, the ones that we want to intervene to. So that, that's what the focus is, I would say. Jens, what do you think? No, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I'm really intrigued because you say that you are screening patients older than 50 and assessing the coronary calcification score. Maybe we should speak a little bit about that. Obviously, that's a, an assessment. The evidence for this is evolving. Can I ask you, Marta, how frequently are you actually, are you doing that comprehensively in all patients older than 50? Because I guess the context here is, and I think many clinicians will remember that typically we judge whether, for example, statins uh, is indicated based on sort of the underlying cardiovascular risk, right? Uh, using one equation or another, Framingham or what what have you. And if, if the five or 10 year risk is above a certain threshold, then you would recommend the starting lipids. But using uh, the coronary calcification, uh, calcification score obviously a much more direct measure of the individual person's uh, atherosclerotic uh, process. Uh, so how comprehensively are you doing this, uh, doing it all? And if so, how frequently are you doing it repeatedly? Can you speak a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. So we do it as a one-off, actually. 
which is probably not the best you can do, but this is what the service has the capacity to do. We do it as a one-off, and we actually have published that in people living with HIV, there is quite a lot of discrepancy between the equation and the CACS results. So in our cohort, some people who would have not received the statin because their equation didn't show a cardiovascular risk above 10% had the high CACS and actually needed the statin statin and vice versa. So it actually does help us there. But we do it on a one-off. Now, the cardiologist that runs our HIV cardiology clinic would like us to do it more often, but we have too many people to do it more than once. However, when we do it once, any time after they turn 50, if it is high above the 75th, they get referred to the cardiology that actually reviews it in details and does uh, request any other test, but it also works in more, again, aggressive primary prophylaxis. So this is how it works. And uh, that's why we focus on which lipids to look and which, uh, you know, and how extensively we want them to change, follow the intervention, going back to the question. Sure. No, that's very helpful and interesting uh, how the medicine area is evolving. I sense from your answer that this is particularly relevant for people where you're in doubt, whether there's an indication or not. And obviously, if the coronary complication score is high, then that is a clear indication for starting it, irrespective of whatever equation we're using may show. Is that a fair Absolutely. summary? Yeah. Yes. Can I read the next one? Uh, yes. Please. There's a question from Laura saying how strong is the evidence of increased cardiovascular risk with integrase inhibitors? So how strong is the data on that? It's not strong data. There is uh, one report I just I was referring to that. And the signal again, uh, there was a what we call a pharmacovigilant signal of an excess risk only in the first two years uh, of treatment. And then it appears to disappear. And we just need to remember that when we do pharmacovigilance for drugs, uh, which are fairly new on the market, there will there's a number of pharmacovigilance signals that is generated that needs to be explored. But at the same time, you cannot assume that if there is a pharmacovigilance signal, that that is a, a causal effect of the drug. Uh, so pharmacovigilance signals are generated and reported because they allow for other uh, studies to uh, assess the question, do they see the same thing? And that's really what we're waiting for at the moment. Uh, And therefore, really, the evidence is not strong enough for us to take clinical decisions based on this observation. But in the drug safety science field, uh, this is an important way to uh, make us understand whether there is toxicity with drugs uh, of various types uh, here in this instance, cardiovascular disease or not. Uh, Obviously, pharmacovigilance has been used extensively for HIV medicines uh, over many years and have been helpful. Some of them have been confirmed. uh, Others have been subsequently refuted. So just so you're all aware, that's that's a normal process uh, uh, that happens uh, as we... uh, as we get drugs, in particular drugs uh, that we're talking about here that you give for extended periods of time where there could be undiscovered uh, toxicities 
and, and as a consequence, uh, cohort studies is using uh, energy to investigate that. Yeah, can I can I add a question to that? Because I, sure. I I don't have Jens Lundgren every day to whom I can <laughs> ask any questions. So I'm going to take the advantage to to add to Laura's question. So the respond cohort didn't correct for uh, starting intake. Well, there were, there was a number in the in the paper it was published in uh, in Lancet HIV. There was a number of assessments uh, of uh, using drugs, uh, but also of dyslipidemia, uh, which is called sort of sensitivity analysis to assess whether the signal identified was affected by by correcting for those factors. You obviously need to be very careful once you start to do that because. The issue that we typically in observations talk about, namely confounding by indication that certain patients are using certain drugs, and you can therefore have drugs that is very effective if you don't control for the fact that we select our patients who are at excess risk and give them drug, it becomes a proxy for people who is more sick. So, so it's a very delicate uh, analysis. Mm -hmm. But in the end of the day, to answer your question directly, Marta, that did not appear to be the explanation. Okay, that's great. Very, very helpful. And uh, there is a question from uh, Magnane about uh, the predisposition of black rays to weight gain. So do we actually think that a genetic factor that may predispose to weight gain, why the studies like ADVANCE have seen this uh, important weight gain in certain people and other studies running mainly in Caucasian individuals don't seem to see the same. Do you have an opinion on that? <laughs> yeah, I have an opinion and the opinion is, uh, I don't know, to be frank I, I don't know either. <laughs> because, uh, I agree, I, mean, I agree. Because <laughs> I've been also discussing this extensively with people. I mean, the, the fear that we have when we see such a signal is, is this due to the population that you are studying? I mean, the, the signal in black women was uh, generated, at least initially, by studies done in South Africa. Can you actually extrapolate that? Is it actually the black race per se? Uh, or is it in the context where the study was done that this was, was generated? Uh, but as you say, there are a growing appreciation uh, that this race uh, difference in weight gain induced by drug appears to have an influence on that. But the biological explanation for that, why that should be like that, uh, I think is, in my opinion, an open question. I don't know, Marta, if you have heard anything, but uh, to, no, to, to solidify this. But uh, yeah, uh, I agree. But I think it's really important to understand. And just as I was saying before, that we see this is obviously important uh, to understand because it looks like it's real, but whether we want to act on it and do something proactively because uh, we are sitting in front of a black woman compared to a uh, Caucasian male, uh, whether we want to change our advice, I think is still something I would think could be debated. Would you, Marta, if you have a patient in front of you that you think uh, you made a point, uh, a good point about maybe switching in particular older people away from uh, boosted protease inhibitors because of potential toxicities over to a unboosted integrase inhibitor. 
would you put an influence in your recommendation depending on ethnicity and gender? So that's a very good question, which I'm delighted to answer. And I will also cover a question from Babajide about how do you convince the geriatric receiving antiretrovirals to follow lifestyle modification plans? And I'll tell you why, you'll understand why I hope to answer both. So I think that modernization of treatment is really important. I did mention why briefly earlier. So, you know, just the reduction of drug-drug interactions and in people with a bit of resistance, we might have to use second generation high genetic barrier integrase inhibitors. And I would like not to exclude this incredible tool when I have to switch someone. So in this context, I believe very much in social prescribings, which again, we have linked to our clinic, a physiotherapist and a dietitian. So instead of starting saying, you know, I'm going to give you metformin, I'm going to give you starting, I'm going to give you this, and then actually generate the polypharmacy, we're going to try to have people sign up to our Live Well pathway. So both in the context of a certain ethnicity that would very much benefit from an integrase inhibitors or a geriatric patient who would probably struggle to go to the gym, we try to support them with our service and kind of overseeing or, you know, monitored lifestyle interventions. So we, we are a very large clinic uh, where there's a lot of people living with HIV that attend. So we try to create these additional services linked to the clinic to be able to provide the best care we can. No, so again, yeah. rather than yeah, rather than not give it, I give it, but I really insist on lifestyle. No, that's an excellent. And I think, uh, Marta, just to follow up, uh, Elena have a question in chat. By the way, thank you, everybody. Uh, we there's a number of great questions here. So Elena is asking, what about getting a, a nutritionist on board before the weight gain yeah. occurs? What's your take? How effective is that? And should we do it more actively? So yeah, we we have the, we have a dietitian, and uh, we uh, make sure that if we fear a higher risk of weight gain, a higher risk for developing the metabolic syndrome, we just switch away from all the drug. We just link them with the dietitian straight away. I'm not saying this <laughs> the success rate is hundred percent. We are trying to work on prevention. Uh, and this is in general also for like, you know, polymorbidity prevention. I think there is room now because we're not worrying so much on viral loads anymore, you know. So we're really trying to work on prevention. So nutrition, dietitian, again, physiotherapist. If it's possible, uh, I think it's a very good idea. And when you say we're not worried about viral load, obviously we are very... So yes, uh, but we have amazing on, drugs. Yeah, we have yeah. amazing drugs, but... So the challenge we had maybe 10 years ago to control the viral replication uh, has really been overcome with the drugs that we have now. So, right, I mean, that that's uh, the transition from are we able to control viral replication to uh, where, where there was genuine problems uh, 10, 15 years ago has really switched now to that a number of different combinations of drugs are able to do this. Uh, so how do we figure out how to actually manage other factors on top of controlling replication, right? So that's, uh, it's been a very dramatic transition in how management and care has been 
been possible in the last one or two decades. So to follow on this, there's a, there's a question from Tiluca saying, what treatment do you recommend to change in young people without comorbidities, only weight gain and all diabetic people with weight gain? So again, I think it's really also a follow-up to, uh, to the comments that you made before, Marta, that uh, I think there is general consensus that you need to have a good argument not to use an integrase inhibitor, uh, an unboosted integrase inhibitor. We have talked about weight gain uh, as a problem, uh, but please understand that there is an excess risk of weight gain, but that do not mean that the individual patient will experience weight gain. So I guess my, my recommendation is to uh, really follow the, the guidelines in this respect uh, and then uh, make sure that if, unfortunately, there is significant and major weight gain, first of all, consider whether there's any signs of metabolic consequences of this uh, and treat that. And then I know that there are at least some physicians, if it is pretty extreme, which it can be, although rarely, uh, that one maybe also try to to switch to another another type of drug, uh, but the complex I- interaction between integrase inhibitors and use of of TAF versus old time tenofovir, uh, it is intriguing uh, how also the type of nucleoside backbone appears to influence uh, the risk of cardiovascular disease. We have talked a lot about integrase inhibitors. And, you know, all the issues around using uh, tenofovir, which have uh, renal uh, and also potential bone toxicity, but seems to be those on tenofovir at less risk of, uh, of experiencing uh, weight gain. Like anything else, it's a balance uh, of things, but uh, I don't think I want to necessarily change to address the question directly. I don't think that two scenarios, young person without comorbidities uh, and diabetic patients, uh, I think I would probably give both of them an integrase inhibitor. Uh, what do you think, Martin? Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you said that. I fully agree. The treatment is probably the same because it's the simplest, easiest, easiest to take, best tolerated, isn't it? High genetic barrier. So I wouldn't give up all of the characteristics of the modern drugs that you know took so many years to to become so great but it's more the interventions around absolutely and also there's a question on abacavir and cardiovascular <laughs> toxicity <laughs> and yeah. speculative data about TAF on this issue no i mean i appreciate that i mean it's been a discussion um for those who's interested in history, uh, the abacavir signal on cardiovascular risk was uh, indeed a pharmacovigilant signal generated in 2008. Uh, has been debated ever since. I mean, there's a number of studies that is able to reproduce this uh, observational studies. Uh, I know the response cohort has just published a paper as well uh, on that point. Uh, again, uh, reconfirming that in a separate cohort of patients. So it appears to be real. But on the other hand, and I think this has been stressed over and over again, that, that this abacavir uh, signal of excess risk of cardiovascular disease, it's actually a signal that tells you that as long as you are on abacavir, your underlying risk is increased. But once you take people uh, away from abacavir, they go back to their underlying risk. 
uh, and that seems to be a fairly consistent finding. Of course, this is only relevant for people who is at excess risk of cardiovascular disease. We just had a discussion about using a equation or uh, the coronary calcification score or things of that nature, but but this is really only something that you really want to pay attention to clinically uh, in people at a very high uh, elevated risk. I think that's at least my take on it, uh, uh, trying to be balanced and also be respectful of the data that has been accumulating. And if you don't mind, I'm just going to reply to the questions about cardiologists. Please. Um, <laughs> so we have set up a cardiology HIV clinic with a, an incredible cardiology colleague who just became passionate about our patients. So it's a very good question. So, you know, how am I going to engage them to, you know, to look after people living with HIV beyond the drug-drug interactions? That's a bit more pragmatic. It's a matter of fact. So I'm telling you, so the, the conversation we have with her, she's very intrigued about how advanced and complicated the, the cardiac comorbidities are in these people. So I think one of the message for them is that, you know, expect complex cardiac comorbidities, expect what you see in an older person without HIV earlier. Don't hesitate to actually investigate something you would investigate in an older person earlier because this is really what it seems that it's happening and uh, it's wonderful if you have cardiologists on board and you kind of sub-train them in HIV a little bit so they they really learn about managing cardiometabolic syndrome syndrome in in people with uh, with HIV uh, no, thank I'm sure you. You, you must work uh, with cardiologists too. Yes, I do as well, and I agree. Uh, I think uh, HIV management is a multidisciplinary team, uh, and bring in expertise and make sure you have expertise available to you uh, so you can discuss it with them. And just my last comment here would be to everybody uh, we mentioned different guidelines there's the DSHS guidelines, the, the, there's the BEVA guidelines, there's the EAS guidelines. Many of them have been issuing the guidelines as apps you can download on your, you know, your smartphone so you have them readily available. So there's an abundance of good and clear recommendations that you can use uh, in a part of your, your daily work as a healthcare professional. So from my, my end, thank you very much for joining in. Back to you. Thank you very, very much. Thank you very much to our faculty and thank you to our listeners for joining in. Please be sure to check back for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you.